0: Everything from large, complex mergers and acquisitions, capital raising, joint ventures, strategic alliances, real estate, affiliate and sponsorship deals, and more, including smaller deals that you can do without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for over 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Harris Balch is responsible for leading Dynasty's investment banking division. Prior to joining Dynasty, Harris spent nearly a decade at UBS Investment Bank, where he was an executive director in the firm's financial institutions group. While at UBS, Harris originated, led, and executed over 10 billion of strategic MA and capital market transactions for companies in the asset and wealth management industry. Harris, welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast.
1: Thanks, Corey. Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So listen, folks, Dynasty Financial Partners is a great industry partner of ours in the RA space. We do a lot with them in various aspects of the services they provide. The last couple of years, I've gotten to know Harris, and we've done a a bunch of stuff together in the industry. And he's a really super knowledgeable guy and great to have on. I'm definitely looking forward to hearing from him about the RA industry, what's going on on in M&A, why Dynasty started an investment bank. But before we get there, Harris, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe eight, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because I'm guessing an investment banker probably wasn't it back then, but you tell me. I didn't know what investment
1: banking was (laughs) until after I graduated college, Corey. I did enjoy trading stocks. I was was actually eight to 12 years old, maybe closer to 12 years old. I was actually a bagel baker growing up on Long Island. Okay. And in between playing baseball and wanting to be a baseball player, I would do weekend in between games working as a bagel baker at a bagel store that that no longer exists. So sometimes it was the afternoon shift. And then during the holidays, I actually did the overnight shift. So it was a lot of fun wow. because I would do the overnight shift, open up the store at, I don't know, 11, 12 o'clock. My buddies would come in, we'd have fresh bagels, they'd hang out. Sometimes we'd invite people over. but have a little quiet party. And no, one, no, it was like our own happy place. i take the
0: money and then I'd invest it in the stock market. And that's how I learned about the markets. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. You said you didn't know what an investment baggo was back then. Neither did I. I didn't even, I barely not even know what the stock market was back then. I didn't, <laughs> I grew up in a low middle-class family. So my parents were not invested in the stock market. They were invested in trying to buy food and uh, pay the rent. <laughs> so it took me even later to figure that part of it out. <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. And one other question looking back, what was your first deal of any type? It could have been something small when you were a kid or early in your career, whatever it comes to mind.
1: So my first deal growing up, that's a really good question. It's funny, one of the things that I love to do with my buddies growing up when we were probably in in college is we'd love to promote parties in the city. So I'm from New York, born and raised and schooled. And when we'd come home for Thanksgiving, for New Year's, sometimes around the holidays, we'd have this influx of, of people that would come in from from school from all over parts of the country and people would want to get together. And there was no Facebook or, and there was no link. They were barely cell phones. So the best way to connect was actually seeing each other and hanging out. Yep. So we partnered with one of our buddies was a really big promoter in and around the city. So we'd buy wholesale tickets yep. and, and then we'd sell them at, at retail prices. And then we'd write huge checks to get all of these tickets. And then we'd have to sell them over a three, four week period. And there was no like Ticketmaster or stubhub it was all word about. Um, and, and that was a lot of fun because in addition to having a great time and you know hanging out with all your buddies through selling tickets, you'd make a little bit of money and then you'd also get the bottle service and the tables. and I'm not a big party guy, but it was just it was fun to bring people together and yeah. and just have fun. That was probably the first interaction I had with you know doing deals and making some real money. And then each year we buy incrementally a couple more
0: tickets to just sell them. And a lot of fun stories. few, very few of
1: which are appropriate for this podcast. (laughs)
0: I'm sure. I've told this story before on the podcast, but not exactly. But so was still when I was in college. Somehow my last two years, I got to uh, Stony Brook. They had, there's a beer distributor that would, these were the days when the drinking age was 18, not 21 in New York. So most of the college kids could drink. And if you want to go pick up a keg or two, you can go drive out to the Claire Rose and pick it up. But if you needed 15 or 20 or 25 kegs for a big party... They had to deliver it, and they and they didn't want to deal with a million students, so they only had two reps on campus. Oh, and for wow. so my last two years, I was one of the reps on campus, my half of the campus. That okay. anybody <laughs> who needed a beer had to go through me. And similarly, I got a wholesale price, and I could re- resell it at whatever price I wanted. And I made good money. But also, yeah, the benefits were that I got in free to every single party and <laughs> had all the perks of controlling the beer in college. <laughs> there you go. You were the man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it couldn't be better. So let's uh, let's jump to the present day. Like I said in the intro, Dynasty Financial Partners has been a great uh, part of ours. We've been working with them since, really, Dynasty started. And we work have, have worked in traditionally, Dynasty's, what they've known for in the strength was helping breakaway brokers set up th- their own independent RA firms, truly independent because Dynasty doesn't take, the, in, in the class model, doesn't take uh, an ownership interest, just provides uh, amazing services to help them get going startup, figure out custodian space, branding, all that kind of stuff. And then there's ongoing support, back office compliance, that kind of stuff. There's TAMP and that kind of, and all that stuff. But more recently, and it's been what, the last couple of years, Dynasty has not only expanded into financing options for RIAs, whether that's debt or, or equity-like products, and then also now straight in investment banking. Tell us a little bit about that evolution and the, and the role you play and what Dynasty is looking to do with this investment banking side.
1: Like everything you do in business, you want to strive to serve the needs of your clients. And when I joined Dynasty, it was on the back of my, my decade-long career at UBS. And I, I loved the RIA space. I saw the tidal wave that was coming. I started to read about it, and I knew about some of the key competitors. I, I worked with them when I was at UBS, and I thought it'd be great to deliver bolt bracket investment banking services to the masses. And so when I joined Dynasty, initially, the goal was to build out and professionalize our capital program and also to help advise a lot of our clients who launched. They were scaling. A lot of them wanted to do inorganic stuff. And there was no real internal investment banking capability. And yeah, there there were some folks from our firm that had investment banking experience, but there was nobody that came directly off the line that can sit as a partner to an existing client and help advise them. And most of the most of the firms inside of our network, I'd say the average CEO is, is in their late 40s, early 50s, and that's on average. You have some older, some younger. And they want to grow through tucking in advisors, buying RIAs, acquiring capabilities. And they really needed someone who could sit side by side with them that can speak that language. Right. So in many ways it's neat because we get to be an advisor to advisors. And A lot of times folks who join independence don't know how to grow in organically. And even if they want to, they need help. And so we've spent a lot of time, 90% of what we do, Corey, is education and and helping people understand how to do deals, how to be prepared to do M&A when they're ready. And then on the flip side, it's also planning for succession, right? right? Whether you have succession internally or externally, you need to have a plan. So So how do you build that plan? How do you think about valuation? How do you think about succession internally? Is your team set up to afford some of the succession alternatives? If you don't, who are the players that you can align with externally, right? And a lot of that is how our minority equity investment program blossomed because folks wanted an aligned partner and dynasty historically serving RIAs, providing wealth management technology, and also best in best class support around practice management and All sorts of wonderful technologies and capabilities didn't have a full spectrum capital program. And when I joined the business, we had a loan program and we had a revenue participation program where we buy revenue in exchange for capital, but we didn't have this aligned common equity investment construct. And so we looked at the lay of the land and we had the fortune of kind of cherry picking, you know, what we thought was was some of the best features. We we had the ability to pull some of our partners who are open to uh, an aligned equity investment, but, but wanted to make sure that it met, met both their objectives and our objectives. Because a lot of the capital partners that are out there lead with capital, that is what they do. And, and for us, cap- capital is actually an accommodative business. It's our third business line. So we lead with what we call our core business, which is our technology, it's our marketing, it's our compliance, it's our, it's our practice management. Our second business is our, is our investment platform. And and then really our third business was our capital program. And when you think about all of the different types of things that are happening in our space, whether it's aggregators that are getting bigger, you're having you know businesses that are, want to get turned into platforms that are looking for capital to grow, and on the back end, you have more advisors that are looking to leave the industry just due to age than are coming in. There's a real need for succession, and and and. So I, I, had the, 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 I had the vision to speak with the board and, and to speak with our, our management team. And I said, look, we're, we're doing all of this good inside of our network, right? I'm predominantly on the buy side. But, but don't you think that there's a bigger need outside of our network where we could really help support all the different types of succession needs that firms have? And some of those succession needs may fall inside of our network. Some of them may fall somewhere else. But there's really, a, in my opinion, a, a shortage of just like there's a shortage of hiring human talent into RIAs, there's also, in my opinion, a shortage of human talent that are actually advising RIAs on what to do. And a lot of times when we speak with advisors and see advisors that become CEOs, they, they spend a lot of time focusing in the business, focusing on the business and helping grow the business. But when at times when, when it comes to thinking about succession, either whether it's internal or external, how do you facilitate it? How do you plan for it? Who do I speak to? It's great to mind share with other advisors, but but to speak with someone in confidence who have been through multiple reps and multiple types of situations can compare and contrast and take a situation from one side or from another and bring it together in order to advise a, a client on accommodating the best outcome is something that I thought was going to be very prevalent in the market. And so we did our homework to make sure that our FINRA licenses were up to snuff and Everybody on my team is Series 79 licensed. Everybody's come from either investment banking, private equity. We've created our own analyst program internally, so we've started to homegrown, grow some of some of our own talent, and it's been it's been great. We've taken on mandates both inside and outside of the network. The information flow that we're a part of now. Really allows both our ourselves, our clients, to really elevate their game. Obviously, you can't share information, Corey. A lot of this, a lot of the, the information on deals are non-public. Deal figures typically don't get announced, but on a no names basis, that information flow is, is so valuable, and it, it helps our our clients just get stronger in their ability to execute on whatever their objectives are.
0: So, just and I know you you actually said this twice, but I want to make sure the audience who may not be I know it, so I hear it. But just to be 100% clear, so if there is somebody who is not otherwise affiliated with Dynasty, not taking advantage of your number one business or number two, uh, second business as you talked about it, they're still a candidate to, to work on the investment banking side, right? It's a- not, There's no absolutely. other affiliation that's required, right?
1: Yeah. And to be clear, we're not an aggregator. So we're not out there writing checks to buy RIAs. That's not what we're in the business of doing. It's aligned capital, but we do reserve our capital exclusively for RIAs that subscribe to our core invest our core platform and our investment platform but the advisory work that we do with our team extends beyond the network and so for RIAs that are tuning into the episode that wanted to have a confidential conversation or just a market check a lot of times folks reach out to us and say hey what are you seeing in the market how are you feeling about multiples i'm 3 years into to this to this plan how should I be thinking about my exit alternatives now? When should we formally engage? So we have confidential conversations all the time, Corey. The M and A ballgame is a very long one, yeah. and and so we try to build relationships with clients and prospects along the way. And we we're, we're fortunate to to work with a variety of advisors when they're actually ready to transact. Love that.
0: So you mentioned something earlier I want to come back to because it's a topic I talk about all the time and I joke that my listeners probably get tired of it, but I'm going to keep talking about it because it's so important, which is this mindset conversation. You talked about the fact that some of these advisors, right, they break away, they're they're looking to scale and grow, but a lot of times they spend time on the organic growth side, right, how to get more clients, all that kind of stuff, but that they need support. And in terms of this inorganic growth conversation, right, how do you do that? And for me, even before the high there's even that mindset shift to say, hey, wait, there is this other way to grow, right? And maybe not. And I'm talking about here, less so an exit deal, but more of a on the buy side to, yeah. to acquire for your own growth. What do you think? Listen, we see it. I'm very blessed and fortunate to represent many of the firms in the Dynasty Affiliated Network, um, and even within those and certainly outside the Dynasty. Different folks are in different places, and some people have this sort of deal-making mentality, and some don't, right? And some maybe get there. What is it about that mindset shift? What's the what's that conversation that you have? You talked about ninety percent of what you do is education, right? What is that? What is that shift that happens in people when they see when they start seeing this alternative way to grow?
1: Yeah, it comes from a lot of different angles, as you can imagine, Corey. So sometimes it comes internally, right? They'll get their first whiff of M&A when an advisor is really killing it internally. And they say to Mr. or Mrs. CEO, I want to be part of the equity in the firm. And more often than not, the CEO would then call us up and say, I want to, I want to get this advisor into my cap table, but I don't know what I'm worth. So if I need to use my equity as a currency, how do I value my business yeah. in order to accommodate this advisor? That, that's one way. Another way is just what we call friends and family deals. A lot of really good advisors have really strong, are really strong centers of influence or participate in really strong centers of influence inside of their community. And it's not uncommon for RIAs to know some of the neighboring advisors in their, in, in their own community. Because even though each RIA is its snow, own snowflake and a lot of times RIAs don't compete each other, it's such a fragmented industry that it's not uncommon to have two RAs that operate on the same street, and I've seen it, or in the same building. Yeah. And through, through just friendly conversation, I've seen situations where advisors want to talk to each other about what a potential transaction would look like if two of the firms merged, because they, they genuinely like each other and they think they serve clients in the same way. So we've seen that before. Other times, we've seen an advisor break away and build an RIA, and then a year or two later, There's some other advisor that was uh, not involved in the transition, but was potentially part of the office or just some type of relationship that the advisor maybe referred business to when they were at their previous wirehouse, And now that advisor wants to leave and join their RIA. So how do you think about that when it may involve capital, it may involve equity, but may involve some type of take on of debt. And so that's how you see a lot of the CEOs and the principals that we work with get acclimated Into thinking about valuation, thinking about structure, thinking about you know how do I just what are the subtleties in approaching a situation? Because we can do a lot of back office stuff in terms of the modeling work and how you think about pro forma valuation and different types of 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 consideration mixes to align partners. But a lot of times we also play the role of a psychologist, (laughs) and and the the principles that we work with just need help on. It's so funny because they're asking people all the time for money, but they don't know how to approach another advisor and have a thoughtful conversation about merging the businesses together. So a lot of times we serve as a psychologist to help facilitate that conversation alone. And then as it takes its own shape, we we have multiple psychology sessions to, to make sure that both partners feel good about whatever it is that they're doing together. So it comes from a lot of different angles.
0: Yeah, I love that. And it's we've seen all of those, and you and I have probably worked together on every one of those examples, right? Which has been fun. So... So in terms of trends, what are you seeing? about well, this? Is when I did this series with the CEOs of the top uh, aggregators and integrators on the question a few months ago, and a lot of those serial buyers, and I said that and I think it's still true now. Some things have shifted, there are some sort of short-term headwinds. You could say cost of capital is up significantly. Uh, at the time I did that, inflation was higher than it is now. It's come down, but it's still not quite where people wanted to be. Is that the marks have been choppy in the last year or so? See, I have those kind of things, but then also, and we we actually discussed this in the other way around, Harris was moderating a panel down at the Dynasty at their investors forum that I was on. So I'll turn the question back on you. What are you seeing in terms of the evolution and the tension maybe between some short-term headwinds, but maybe some longer-term tailwinds?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. I'm excited for 2024 to see what it brings to the industry because it's just, it's evolving so rapidly. And yeah, look, the cost of capital is probably going to be elevated for uh, a meaningful period of time. I I don't think anybody's questioning that. But you have businesses, just like you have RIAs that are created to serve clients, you have integrators and aggregators of RIAs that were created, that their role is to invest in RIAs. And that's what the businesses were set up to do, right? They're, They're integration engines, they're aggregation machines. And so- as long as there is a fragmented market of RIAs and there are succeeding advisors who don't have a solution internally, right? There is going to be a bid ask for, and so I would suspect that doesn't change in 2024. Having said that, I think that what you're beginning to see is a lot of discipline that goes into the underwriting process. I think looking at where things were Really over the past decade, leading up until 2022, it was pretty easy. Buy an RIA, you ride the market, and then you could flip the business. And even if you don't have any multiple expansion on your EBITDA, the business grows. You can be thoughtful around how you position the business for a sale, and you do okay. Now you have businesses that are bigger, that are smarter. I also think that there's just been a lot less information asymmetry. I think historically, these were deals that, that got done. And they just really weren't exposed. I think there's just been a a tremendous influx in the information flow. And even though you don't hear about necessarily transaction multiples and deal valuations, you certainly hear about enough deals getting announced. There's a lot of information flowing around the individuals that are just participating in the transactions. Sure. Right? And so people are just getting smarter. And when you get smarter and you have just an influx of capital and rising costs to transact you're going to see a lot more discipline. So it doesn't necessarily mean that the deal volume will, will slow down, although we think it might slow down a little bit. What you're really going to see is discipline on the underwriting, right? So how are good investors and in RIAs are going to risk mitigate? So how do you risk mitigate, right? You, you risk mitigate because you're not necessarily paying for all of the consideration upfront. Cash is king, especially in a high interest rate market where you can earn 5% on your cash. Cash is valuable, and people are going to be very disciplined with how they're deploying cash. So you're going to be seeing a very, I'd say, a disciplined mix between how much gets paid up front at closing, how much gets paid over time through retention, through earnouts, right? And and so because you see that elevated cost of, of, of capital, people are also going to be leveraging, in my opinion, their equity as, as currency, which is if the cost of debt is high, the cost of equity is even higher, which no. makes equity an incredibly valuable currency in order to transact if you're aligning with the right partner and current using equity as currency or equity swaps as a form of transaction consideration is going to be uh, a really important going forward. And I do think that there is a correlation between scale, size, and multiple expansions. A lot of the, a lot of the alignment that you see happening in M&A today is some component serving as an equity swap, where some bigger firm is going to provide some smaller firm, a form of alignment through an equity swap, and while that's not necessarily 100% of the deal consideration, part of the story, which I, I think makes plenty of sense both in our space and in other industries, is that a bigger firm is going to be, all things being equal, a bigger firm is going to be more valuable than a smaller firm. So okay. to to receive a form of currency in a larger firm and enable you to get in at the point in which that larger firm is likely going to grow faster and scale quicker. Then you, the smaller firm, gives you the ability to not only transact once, but actually twice, right? which is cool. And I think you're going to see a lot more discipline in in how the deal consideration mix is structured, and certainly that equity currency being used strategically as an alignment tool for firms that are looking to uh, transact.
0: Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can tell you about an incredible resource my team and I have put together for you secrets of deal-driven growth creative ways to grow your business even in challenging times is a powerful ebook that helps you take dealquest podcast episodes and apply them to your own life and business this is the ideal tool for anyone looking for creative ways to grow as deal makers and you can get yours now it's as easy as heading to coreycupfordcom workbook and downloading your copy while you're there, you can also consider joining our dynamic, deal-driven community of founders, experts, small business owners, and entrepreneurs. Now back to the show. Let, let's talk about that, that that equity currency and this sort of second transaction yeah. ability, right? Because different firms have very different models, right? Serity Partners, for example, says it's a 100-year partnership model, right? So they're, they're, they're on one extreme where they say, no, we're not looking to go public or exit tomorrow necessarily. and they don't rule anything out, but... And that's a model where, yeah, maybe you can still get an equity. Mo- I'm not, and I'm. By the way, I'm not asking you to comment on any particular model. Yeah. so I'm just giving them an example where, if you retire out, whatever, maybe there's the ability to monetize that way. There are other, there are others that are, that are much more. Hey, no, we're going to do some round of capital and we'll look at either go public or sell or whatever. The and I'm an optimist, and I do think that there's going to be huge opportunities in this industry. So I'm playing Noble's advocate here. The critics or the pessimists might say, listen, so far if you look at this industry, you got Focus Financial went public. Now they're they go in private, and goodbye, Rudy. Adolf. You got some people would argue United Capital went through certain rounds of funding, ran out of PE firms, had a bailout to Goldman. That was a disaster. I went to Creative Planning, portion of that team, whatever. And again, without coming, if you don't want to any specifics, what is the that second bite of the apple, the value that Currency depends upon it being able to monetize in a way that, you know, that that works. And we've seen in other industries examples where that's been done very well, and others where certain kind of roll-up models have blown up. What do you think of the factors on what is going to determine whether these equity plays are going to be turn out to be doing well or what concerns might you have?
1: I think the biggest concern I have right now is that the equity gets squashed because you have a lot of firms in the private markets that are taking on a significant amount of leverage in order to do M&A. You have firms that are levered anywhere from six to 10 times cost of capital creeping into the double digits on average in order to get deals done. So just by virtue of that, the ability to accrete over time is going to be a much longer run rate as opposed to where we were 18 to 24 months ago. So that makes it significantly more challenging. And you also have not every firm is aligned with a private equity partner that that can serve as an evergreen capital source. At some point, the LPs are going to force some type of liquidity event in order to allow a private equity partner to realize uh, a, a, either a gain or maybe even a loss right. in 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 their investment on a on a specific opportunity. And I think I don't want to comment specifically on on any deal. The fact is that the public markets. Award award companies for earnings growth, organic earnings growth, and for a prudent capitalization policy, right? Prudent balance sheet policy. Most firms that are traded publicly are not going to, you know, be taken seriously if they're levered six to ten times. I don't care what industry you're in. You That's know, right? that, that puts you at meaningful risk to not only service your debt, but also pay it down when it comes due. Which creates a meaningful amount of, of risk with refinancing risk, and and I think in the case of some publicly traded firms that have gone private, or other ones that have gone public, it's really having a prudent balance sheet policy that will dictate your ability. It's really simple, Corey. It's for every dollar of invested equity, what is my what is my return on assets. Sure. Right if I have a strong return on on my assets, I will be able to deliver a a positive return to my equity holders and When you introduce the concept of debt and leverage, while I think there is a healthy level of equilibrium between debt and equity, the public markets are going to dissuade you from overlevering your balance sheet in order to grow inorganically right and yeah. and so you really need to look at the plowback ratio of what firms in the public markets are actually doing with the capital that they're generating. And if it's if the earnings are exclusively being used to just pay down debt, it's very difficult to have a sustainable organic growth gr- organic growth policy. And so with some of the firms that have gone on private, I, I think they've they've unfortunately the, the public markets were not able to really understand their story and maybe not allow them grow the way that they need to grow. And for firms that, that are public or are looking to go public, I think there's a, a really unique opportunity to, when the markets come back, because they're not there right now, sure. to leverage the public markets as a, an opportunity to tell or retell the, eminent, the independent wealth management story. Because it's probably the greatest story that hasn't been told in the public markets the right way. You yeah. don't see what's happening in our industry today, is covered with very specific industry trade rags. But with the sure. exception of maybe the HVAC industry, there's no other industry in the US that's more ag- more, more fragmented than the RIA space. So I don't understand why it's not showing up on the cover of the Wall Street Journal every quarter, because there's just so much activity going on in, in our space. I, and I so but getting back to, to your, your question and just to support your answer a little bit more, I, I think when firms are looking to enter the, the the public space and and maybe they've they've taken on a meaningful amount of leverage, going public is just a great way to accelerate the pay down of that debt and reward a lot of the equity holders for for the growth that they maybe have endured privately. That's what's created a historically. That's what's created a, a an incredibly vibrant public capital market. And I do think we're going to see the public markets come back in in some regard over the next several quarters. I, I think from a macroeconomic standpoint, investors just need to investors just hate uncertainty and I think we remain in a very uncertain environment between the war in Ukraine, the war in Israel, high interest rates, we need more clarity as to whether the Fed is going to be having a soft landing or whether we're going to still be in some level of disarray for a period of time. But the market hates instability, right? Sure. And and uncertainty. So when we hit a period of more certainty, maybe less war, and more economic stability, and, and maybe there's a more there's there's a more transparent, you know, Fed path to interest rates. You're going to see more firms test the waters with with tapping the public markets. It's not just going to be the next tech buzz looking to raise money in the you know tech buzzed company looking to raise money in the public markets. You'll have more traditional firms, and I also think. And sorry to go off on a tangent, but I've I spent a lot of time working with these types of companies. Sure. Sometimes you get so big in the private markets that there is just no natural strategic buyer, sure. Sure. right? Even though that might be the the natural buyer of the business. If there is no natural strategic buyer and you've just gotten so big, and there are plenty of firms out there that are getting really big, but you've got creative planning, who's almost eclipsing 300 billion. You've got, you got on the IBD side, you have Advisor Group, you have, uh, excuse me, Osaic, you have Cetera. These firms are becoming massive firms. And if there's really no, no natural owner, I suppose you could always flip to private equity yet, yet again and, and kind of restart that, that cycle. Or you could look at yourself in the mirror and say that, that the public market is really the natural owner of a business. And yes, you can make the argument that once you go public, you're always on sale. So you could always go private again. And that, that, that creates a vicious cycle. But, but when you hit a certain size and, and a certain threshold, sometimes the public markets are, are really the only natural path to create liquidity and to create growth. Sure.
0: Let's go back to the investment banking services that you're providing through Dynasty, especially to not necessarily only to the internal folks. Who's the ideal client for that? What's, what, what size RIA? What, what are they looking for? Give us an idea of that.
1: We like working with all different sorts of firms. We work with firms that are as small as $250 million in AUM. It's one person and two support staff or one person with junior advisor and support staff. We work with firms that are as big as five, 10, 15 billion. As you can imagine, the Dynasty Network in and of itself has firms of that size. We work with firms that are backed by private equity or family offices and those that that haven't. Given that we've come from both brackets, both bracket investment banking, we could serve firms really of, of any size what I've found is that some would say that the smaller firms are more difficult to work with because they're smaller. So you're, as a banker, you're transaction oriented. You're not going to make as much money. If, if you're a smaller firm and you're listening to this podcast, you'd probably be surprised with what I'm about to say, but they're also very valuable. A lot of these a lot of these smaller firms are underbanked. They're not called on by the aggregators because they just fall below the cusp of the list. And, and because they've been do-it-yourself for such a long time and they're small, um, you know, They run really lean, and that creates tremendous cash flow. And so when a smaller firm is is just thinking about doing a a transaction, they just need to set a comp ratio that they're comfortable with and capitalize the rest. And then it's up to us to find an aligned partner with their business and their clients, et cetera. But we love working with all different types of small businesses across the country because those are sometimes the most fun and the most impactful firms to, to work with. But on the larger side, as you move up, it just becomes more complex, right? You have more owners, you have more stakeholders. Sometimes you have outside capital providers, sometimes the operating agreement has changed over a couple of times, right? You got to answer to multiple types of stakeholders. Sometimes you're not just dealing with outside investors and inside investors, but you're also dealing with the employees because one of the biggest questions that always comes up is when you're working on an M&A deal, it's great that you got a strong valuation, you've got a competitive process from a couple of different credible partners, but how do you compensate some of the some of the people at the company that aren't equity partners but have been incredibly loyal, right? Yeah. So those are interesting conversations that we like to get involved with to make sure that all the stakeholders are feeling good about the types of deals that they're doing. And then on the, on the buy side, we get involved in, right now we're working on a merger deal between two RIAs. It's not always just a, an advisor, an RIA looking to talk in an advisor. It's sometimes an RIA looking to buy and merge with another RIA. Uh, a lot of the clients that we work with are not backed by private equity, right? And and so how do they use an aligned currency or how do they raise capital to just structure a deal and to make it work for, for both parties? So we get involved in all different types of transactions, both sell side and, and buy side.
0: Love it. You mentioned something that I want to highlight a little bit, which is conversation of what do you do when you have a G2, maybe that hasn't been equitized and now you got a deal going on and maybe they control. We've seen it definitely whether or not equitized at all, or maybe you've got the junior guy who has 10% of the company, but controls 30% or 40% of the of the client relationships. And so there's, there's a conversation about how you solve for that on the back end, which if you have any input, I'd love to hear. But also sure. because we work together, at, at least in terms of the dynasty affiliated firms, one of the things that, that we work together on is trying to think through the inequity and capital structure that anticipates the ability to equitize people as you bring them in a store, whether it's sure. people or people you're tucking in. So talk a little bit about that whole equitization sure. conversation and like the proactive view. And then if you haven't done it proactively, how do you deal with it?
1: I'll give you the proactive and then the reactive. Because on the proactive, it's easy because when we're working with advisors that are looking to either join our platform or create a new RIA. Uh, The the proactive view is you're starting from scratch. Dynasty, you've seen a gazillion different types of situations. How can my operating agreement be bulletproof? And unfortunately, we can't be uh, bulletproof for every situation, but in terms of setting up the right types of share classes that are either led by owners, led by advisors, or future equity owners, there are ways to structure your operating agreement to accommodate Internal succession situations and whether the person receiving the equity is it participates in just the capital upside or the capital and the economic upside is really up to up to, up to each RIA. That's the beauty of independence: is that you can really craft your operating agreement to to really meet the the needs of, of what you think you will need in the future. And yeah, you could always change your operating agreement, but you can be proactive on the front end to to address a situation that you think will come up or is coming up as a result of going into independence. On the reactive side, it's interesting. My, my biggest advice for listeners out there that are thinking about doing an internal succession is that you, 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 everybody needs to lean in. Everybody needs to lean in. Because it's a great way to perpetuate your business. And there are plenty of RIAs that are just rugged individualists, rugged independent firms. They will not never take private equity. They don't want outside capital, and it's really important for them to, to, to perpetuate their business from the inside. So just by virtue of that, you need to be flexible with how you accommodate the rotational equity inside of your firm. Uh, so everybody has to lean in sometimes with valuation. Owners need to lean in on when they receive their payout, for their equity sometimes the cost of that buyout may involve not just a seller finance note, but also outside capital. The cost of outside capital to a second-generation advisor is naturally going to be much more expensive than a friendly seller note. Coming up with a a cost-of-capital mix for a second-generation advisor, who, by the way, is also owns a home and is looking to save money uh, to, to put two, two or three or four kids through college um, has a very different liquidity profile than, than someone who's retiring and looking to perpetuate their business through a succession event. So it's not easy, but I'll tell you, Corey, from working with our clients, when there is a real desire of the, of the firm to perpetuate and everybody's willing to lean in and give up something right? Maybe the exiting owner doesn't get the max valuation, and, but they get to issue a seller note on their terms that makes sense for them and for the advisor and for the, for the second generation advisor. And then for the, the second generation advisor, maybe they have to commit to making a bullet payment on a certain tranche of the equity a couple of years out because it forces them to grow the business and the enterprise value of the firm which only makes their equity more, more value for a future succession event, are the types of things that you need to deal with. And it just requires a lot of iteration, but most importantly, patience.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that that's absolutely true. There's so much more we can talk about, but we're out of time. So I'm going to ask you my final two questions. The first one is just, what can people find out more about you and the services specifically that you're providing at Dynasty? And
1: Sure, yeah, about. we... The, the Dynasty Investment Bank has its own website. So if you just Google Dynasty Investment Bank, you can certainly look us up. For For folks who are listening that are familiar with, with Dynasty, you can go to dynastyfinancialpartners.com or, or dynastyinvestmentbank.com, and you can learn more about Dynasty's business and, and our investment bank.
0: Love it. Asked my final question on the podcast is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything... From freedom around the world for, from, for all people from oppression to why I've been an entrepreneur for decades and haven't had a boss. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? It's a great question Corey. For me, freedom means
1: peace on earth. It means creating unity and community around, around you. And, and that level of, of harmony is your Zen and enables you to perform at your highest level every day. And that runs with you at home with your family and then in your office with the people that you work with. And if you feel free and we're lucky to, and very fortunate to work in a, a free country where we have our freedom, it, it enables
0: us to be the best we can be. Harris, thanks for being such a great guest on the DealQuest podcast. Thanks, Corey. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. The Deal Den is a place where entrepreneurs, high-level executives, and business leaders come together, support each other's growth and success, and share what's working best, as well as what challenges we are facing right now. You will get input not only from me, but from all of our members. We collaborate and serve each other. To join us, go to coreycupfor.com slash DealDen. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.